text for the sermon this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Taking a brief break from our study through the book of Acts to set our hearts and our minds on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and specifically that that duty of self-examination which we are called to. I'll have us read the first eight verses of First uh, Corinthians 5, but we're largely going to spend our time in, in verses 6 through 8, but I think it's important that we recognize some of the context of what Paul is saying there in First Corinthians 5. So let's hear God's word this morning as we find it in First Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of our living and holy God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he has done this deed, might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Something that was very popular several years ago, I'm not sure if it's still popular, was doing uh, different kinds of cleanses or, or detox. Uh, people would only eat certain kinds of food or, or drink juices for a certain period of time in an attempt to remove toxins from their bodies. It was thought that, uh, for example, doing something like a juice cleanse could improve your energy, help with weight loss, and even deal with headaches. There was, uh, was back then, and there still is much debate about the efficacy of such cleanses. And I, but I'm, I'm not really interested in exploring that uh, with you here this morning. Uh, we may never know, or you know, it, it could just be something that's subjective. However, I do know of a cleanse that Scripture commands and will be efficacious for your growth in grace. And that is the spiritual cleanse we read of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul in our text calls us to, to purge ourselves of this old leaven. As we'll see, that old leaven is sin. We, we have a calling to remove sin from our lives, to, to examine ourselves and remove wickedness from our lives. Now, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament that has been instituted by Christ. As we saw last, last month, it is an opportunity for us to, to richly feast on Christ, to, to experience much of his grace and mercy towards us. 
And as we partake of that sacrament, we're we're called to recognize our own unworthiness, to see our own sinfulness, and to focus on the worthiness of Christ and, and His righteousness. One of the necessary aspects of rightly partaking of the Lord's table is that calling for us to engage in this spiritual discipline of self-examination. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Part of our examination includes comparing ourselves to the law of God, comparing ourselves to who God is and what he has commanded us to do. And finding areas where we are failing in that regard. Areas where we're we're failing to keep God's law. And when we recognize where we're failing to keep God's law, we, we purge that sin from us. We repent of that sin. We turn from it and turn to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. As we look to partake of the Lord's Supper next week. We must be doing that spiritual work of cleansing and purging sin from our lives, cleansing and purging that old leaven from our lives. We must do that leaven cleanse that 1 Corinthians 5 talks about. The first part of this leaven cleanse is visualizing the dangerous growth of sin. The Apostle Paul warns the Corinthian church about the danger of sin by using an illustration from the kitchen. He says in verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Children, have you ever seen your mom bake bread before? She'll take some flour and she'll take some water and she'll mix it together and make dough. But you need more than flour and water to make bread. You need, you need leaven. You need, you need yeast. Uh, nowadays, we get our, our yeast in, in little packets, and they're just small little, uh, uh, almost like seeds, these little small little brown seeds. And you put that into the dough, and it causes the dough to rise. Well, back in the time when Paul was writing in this, they didn't have those, those dry little uh, uh, seed-like bits of yeast Instead, they had leaven. Leaven was leftover, uh, in a sense, leftover dough from the last time that the bread was baked. And you would put that, that leaven into the dough, and, and the dough would rise. But part of the problem with leaven was that leaven could go bad. It could uh, get harmful bacteria in it. And when you mix that, uh, that old, that bad leaven with your dough, the whole uh, dough would go bad because that, 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 that bacteria would spread throughout the entire uh, ball of dough. And that's really the example that Paul is using to talk about the dangerous reality, the dangerous growth of sin. Because this is exactly how sin operates. Sin never sits still. 
Sin is always seeking to gain the upper hand. It is always seeking to spread into every area of life and to destroy. We see this happen frequently in our, in our personal lives. If we are not putting a besetting sin to death, that sin gains more and more prominence in our lives. We start to notice that we're committing the sin with greater frequency and that our personal relationship with the Lord is struggling. We, we start to feel distanced from God. Devotions and prayer taper off. We're, we're, we're resistant to go to God because we're, we're clinging to our sin. And, and we have that guilt saying, you can't go to God. You're, you're a sinner. And because we're, we're clinging to that sin... Oftentimes, other sins will start creeping up. We'll start experiencing depression. We'll start experiencing anxiety. Sin, if it's not dealt with, creates downward spirals of of more sin and hopelessness. Sin truly alienates from God. It disrupts our relationship with God. And this happens in marriage as well. Perhaps some conflict has arisen between a husband and his wife. Maybe the initial matter was was very small. Someone sinned against the other. Maybe they said something they shouldn't have said. Maybe they used the wrong tone of voice. But no mercy was shown. No forgiveness was asked for. The sin was not dealt with. And then more and more sins keep piling up upon upon that small, small sin. And the conflict grows and grows and and becomes a vicious monster. Neither the husband nor the wife responded to the original conflict in a biblical manner. Because of that, sin in their relationship grows. is like adding yeast to dough. It spreads throughout that entire bowl of dough and, and rises. Sin, if it is not dealt with, produces an ugly monster of destruction and sorrow. One final example here is, as many of you know, I've been uh, getting involved with woodworking lately. And it's amazing how much sawdust cutting one board will produce. And this started to become an issue when, when Grace, uh, several days ago, asked, what are all these flakes that are appearing inside the house? Uh, what is this? And I had to own up and say, well, well that's you know, bits of sawdust that I'm tracking into the house. But if I had been uh, proactive in dealing with that sawdust, that sawdust would not then be spread throughout the entire house. Similarly, if we're proactive with dealing with our sin, the Lord will be pleased to bless the whole of our relationship with God, the whole of our relationship with others, including those who we're married with, and our relationships with those in the church. This reminds us that sin is never something that's just personal. Sin is never just something that's private. When we commit sins, especially as the, 
as a member of the body of Christ. This isn't just you sinning. Your sin has consequences on the rest of the body of Christ. Your sin, if it's not dealt with, will reap consequences in the greater church. And the church in Corinth is an example uh, that sin is not something that's just personal. Corinth was a church that was not dealing with sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is, is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. The church had a man that was committing incest. He was married to his mother. And the Corinthian church was not putting that man under discipline. The Corinthian church was not reproving and rebuking this man. You might think that at the, the very least, the, the Corinthian church would, would be sad about such a, a, a sin. But they weren't even mourning about it. They were, they were puffed up. They were arrogant about their sin. They were boasting in it. They were glorying in their sin. We might ask, you know, how is that possible? How is it possible that someone would, would glory in sin, especially a Christian? The church, we have to remember the church in Corinth believed in Christ. They, they believed that the Lord had saved them from their sins. How could they possibly glory in sin? Well, I don't believe this is necessarily the same type of glorying in sin that we see commonly today among various movements, especially the LGBTQ movement, where there's that open flaunting of sin, that, that open mockery and, and, in a sense, tempting of God. Instead, the Corinthian church being arrogant and puffed up was much more likely the thought that they were spiritually mature enough to be immune from the consequences of sin. This glorying was a type of arrogance. They thought that they knew their Bibles enough, that they prayed enough, that they were established enough to not have sin affect them. But they were not taking the lesson of the kitchen to heart, that a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. Perhaps they were hesitant to deal with this sin because of this man's position. Perhaps they, they justified overlooking the sin by saying, this man is an incredibly gifted Christian. He knows how to communicate the gospel so well. He knows his theology. He knows it in and out. He has been used by the Lord. We can't put him under discipline. That would, be, that would, that would hurt our church to kick this man out. Or perhaps this man was, was very wealthy and contributed hundreds of dollars to the church each week. Maybe the church thought, well, if, if we put him under discipline... We're no longer going to have the same amount of money to do all, all that we want to do as a church. 
So, so let's just overlook this sin. You know, we can handle it. Yes, it's a, it's a, a great sin, but, you know, uh, God's grace is greater than this sin. You know, we don't have to deal with this. Let's just let's let things be as they were. We won't be tempted. We, you know, we'll be all right. But no matter the justification here, no matter what the thought process that was going through uh, the the congregation in Corinth. The Corinthians were foolishly arrogant. This wasn't wise. This came from an improper understanding of the true dangers of sin. There's not one person who should even dare to think that they are spiritually immune to the devastating consequences of sin. Sin isn't something to mess around with. The Corinthians thought they could live with serious sin and not let it affect them or their fellowship. But this should not be your attitude. You should must visualize the dire consequences of sin. If you're struggling with sin in your life, if you discover as you engage in self-examination this week, if you discover sin in your life, purge it out. Get rid of it. See the dire consequences of what, of what even the smallest sin can bring. Mourn. Because of sin. Don't don't think you're immune to it. Sin should bring about a great sorrow and anguish in our hearts. Far from pride and, and arrogance, it should cause tears to run down our faces. If you are letting sin remain in your life, thinking it's not a big deal, you need to wake up and visualize the grave consequences of sin. And as you mourn over your sin, purge yourself of that sin, knowing that your true identity is in Jesus Christ. Part of the biblical response to sin, part of that call to repent is to purge sin from our lives. We don't let it remain there. Yes, we confess it to God. And God in His grace promises to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we don't stop at, at asking God for forgiveness. We endeavor for, to, to obey God with, with new obedience, to, to get rid of that sin in our lives and to replace it with godly living. Paul says in verses 7 and 8, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Do you remember what I said earlier about the potential for bad leaven with harmful bacteria? When Paul says purge out the old leaven, he's talking about the removal of this bad leaven. Just as you might remove harmful bacteria from a kitchen, so we must remove it from, so we must remove sin from our lives. There must be the complete removal of it. 
A good cook will regularly check his, his bins of, of apples and potatoes to make sure there isn't one, one rotten potato or apple in there. If he, if he sees one, he'll, he'll get rid of it because he knows that if he leaves it there, it will rotten, it will, it will cause a whole bin of apples or potatoes to get rotten. And just as a, a good cook examines his bins for rotten produce, so we too must examine our lives for the rottenness of sin. This is the purpose. This is part of the purpose of self-examination. This is an examination of our hearts and our actions to see if there is anything that is not in conformity to God's law. And that's why I had us read the law earlier. You need to be constantly going back to the law of God. The law of God is, is that mirror of God's holiness and God's character. It tells us who our God is and how absolutely righteous and holy he is. And when we compare ourselves to that law, we should always find some area where, where we have broken that law. And when we see that, we should run to Christ and, and, and call upon Christ to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us by his blood. But another aspect of the law, another use of the law, is to guide us in holiness, in rightness of actions, to, to conform our lives more and more to what God has called us to do as his people. When we discover the rottenness of our sinfulness by comparing ourselves to the law, we must purge it from ourselves. We must endeavor after new obedience. Sometimes we can act as though you know, we can salvage you know, little, little aspects of our sin. That, you know, okay, I, can go, I can go this far in, in, in getting rid of sin in my life, but I won't go all the way. So you you have the example of a man who uh, has a bad temper, and he deals with that temper by, well, I'm not going to get angry in public anymore. And he he doesn't do that. But in private, it's a whole other matter. When the telephone company has spent hours with the telephone company to to get a line repaired, and no one's watching him, but he gets angry. He's, He's not controlling his temper, but he thinks, oh, you know, that's all right, you know. At least I'm not getting angry in, in public. Or you have the example of, of a man who, who you know, looks upon a woman with lust. He says, you know, that's all right. No one knows about that. Uh, no one knows what I've committed. I haven't done the actual physical act of, ad, uh, of adultery. So, you know, everything's all right. We cannot salvage aspects of our sin. If we are to be faithful to this call to purge out the old leaven from our lives, we must get rid of every aspect of our sin. We must have an unrelenting war against our sin. We must not be content with, with, with a small degree of holiness, but we must go all the way We can't be content with a degree of rottenness. 
So if we're content with a degree of rottenness, if we're just getting rid of the external elements of our sins, we're just like the Pharisees who, who clean the, the outside of the cup, but inside is, is dirt and filth. Let's be ruthlessly purging ourselves of sin. Now, it can be easy to coast along in the Christian life. So easy for us to put things into cruise control and go about life as normal. We're creatures of habit, after all. We get into a groove, and, and it can be really hard to, to get outside of that groove. But that can be a dangerous place, especially if we are harboring sin. We must be engaged in, in constant warfare against sin. We need to be soldiers. A soldier who is in a combat zone will, will have a, a heightened sense of awareness. He's constantly scanning his environment for threats. He's, he's taking second looks at, at every tree and pebble, making sure that there's not, not a danger there. He's, he's constantly trying to, to find the enemy before the enemy finds him. This is what we need to be doing in our spiritual life we have truly seen and visualized the dire consequences of sin, the, the great danger that sin is, we would be fools not to be constantly on guard, constantly uh, watching out for the enemy of sin. But as I said before, we don't always have this intenseness. We get into our old habits, get into ruts. And I think one of the reasons is for that is that the battle against sin can be both exhausting and discouraging. It's much easier for us to give into temptation than to fight against it. It's easier to continue in our old habits of sinfulness and destruction than to live that new gospel life. Just as a soldier can experience battle fatigue, a Christian can experience battle fatigue. But to keep from that battle fatigue, we need times of constant nourishment and refreshing. This is one of the blessings of the Lord's Day. This time to, to recharge a time to, to renew our devotion and our desire to serve the Lord. It's a time to reflect upon God's great grace in sending us the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of the great blessings of the Lord's Supper as well. It's a time that God has given to us to refresh ourselves in his grace. God has given us that sacrament to remind us of his grace and love towards us, to refresh us to cause us to see the, the glorious wonders and, and heights and depths of his love. Just as Jonathan's eyes were enlightened, here he was fighting one of the battles of his father, King Saul. And uh, he had been fighting all day, and he saw that honeycomb. And he ate of that honeycomb, and his eyes were enlightened. And he had strength restored to him. So the Lord promises to refresh and restore us when we partake of the Lord's table. 
The Lord's Supper is a joyous thing for us. It's a time for us to, to uh, be reinvigorated and to experience the, the depths of God's grace. Paul says in verse 8, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Now there are several truths we can pull from this, this beautiful short sentence that should give us much encouragement in our battle against sin. First is that Paul says Christ, Christ is our Passover. Our hope in the battle against sin. In purging out that old leaven is in Jesus Christ. It's not in, in those self-help books. It's not in us believing in ourselves. It's not in us getting all amped up by listening to a piece of music or, or getting all emotional watching a movie. It's not in, in us believing in ourselves or in us changing our environments such that we remove every source of temptation. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And that hope is not just in uh, a teaching, an abstract you know, thought, you know, uh, but that hope is in a living person. That hope is in Jesus Christ, who is resurrected and ascended and sitting at the right hand of God the Father. This is one of the glorious truths of the Christian religion. Islam, well, Muhammad's dead. Buddha, well, well, Buddha's dead. But we have a living Savior, one who reigns over all things, and one who has promised us victory because he has gotten the victory. Strength, and the fight comes from Christ, who is indeed our Passover lamb, sacrificed for us. We are not our own saviors. You won't experience any lasting victory over sin if you constantly think that you have to muster up that moral courage to fight against sin yourself. Nor will you experience true victory if you believe that by your actions you can merit salvation from God. Strength is found in running to the person of Jesus Christ, casting your sins and your struggles against sin at his feet. Strength is found in humbling yourself and saying, I can't do this. I'm weak. Lord, grant me your spirit to fight against sin. I need that spirit of Christ to help me wage war. Notice that Paul also says that Christ is our personal Passover. In other words, Christ is our personal Savior. Christ, sorry, Paul says Christ is our Passover. The Jews had their Passover, which after the death of Christ was no longer needed. It was no longer necessary to observe that Jewish Passover where they would, where they would kill that lamb. The Jewish Passover could no longer help them. They now needed to trust in Christ, to let Christ be their Passover. The Jews had their Passover Christ is our Passover. 
We need to own Christ as ours in the day of temptation. We need to guard him with a jealous love saying, no, no, he is mine. Christ is mine. Satan, you might tempt me to to commit these sins, but Christ is mine. Christ owns me. He's my strength. He's my fortress. He's my deliverance. I can battle against him, not because Christ was the Passover of Paul, not because Christ was the Passover of Peter, but because Christ is my Passover. Christ is the Passover of his people. Finally, notice that Christ was sacrificed for us. Jewish Passover was one that had to be done again and again. There's no end to it because it is not sufficient to save. But Christ has been sacrificed for us. It's been done. It's in the past tense. He has redeemed us by His blood. The legal punishment we deserve has been paid for by His death. He's removed the guilt and shame of our sin. But not just that. He's also given us a new life. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 2, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Because of our union with Christ, when Christ died on the cross, we also died. But we didn't die physically. But we died to sin. We are now dead to sin. Sin is, sin is dead to us. It's no longer alive. It's, it's, it's no longer reigning over us. Our old man, that old leaven which we must purge, was crucified with Christ, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We have a new master, and he's a kind and a loving master whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. This new master is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves of God. We are new creations. And this is what Paul means when he says that since you truly are unleavened. Our identity is that we are unleavened. It's not that we are, we are, we are uh, sinners. Our identity is the unleavened identity. We are pure because of Christ. We are holy because of Christ. We are new creations because of Christ. Our true identity is not that we are sinners. Our true identity is not found in our besetting sins. Our true identity is not in our occasional sins. Mothers, you are not your anxiety. Fathers, you are not your anger. No, we are new creations if we are in Christ Jesus. 
The old things have passed away and all things have become new. When we fight against sin, we can have victory over it because of this new identity that we have in Christ, because Christ has made us that new creation, because we are now unleavened. And so purge out that old leaven, knowing your true identity is in Christ. And finally, we must keep the feast all our lives. Paul says in verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is this feast that Paul is talking about? Paul's, Paul's just mentioned the Passover, but, but Paul isn't talking about the Passover. He's talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, which was taken, which was observed right in conjunction with the Passover. In Exodus 12, verse 15 through 17, we read, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. On the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. That which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day, I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. The feast of unleavened bread was to be a reminder to Israel of how the Lord delivered from the land of Egypt. The Lord said there, I shall, because on the same day, you shall observe this feast, because on the same day, I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. This feast was to commemorate how Israel had been delivered from the slavery of Egypt, from the physical bondage that they endured from their slave masters. And Egypt, Israel's spiritual bondage in Egypt, is a picture of our own spiritual bondage to sin. Just as the Lord delivered Israel from its slavery, He has delivered us from the slavery to sin. And so Paul calls us to, to keep this feast of unleavened bread. Now, we do not keep the actual feast of unleavened bread. We don't have to purge out, uh, purge our houses of leaven once a year and only eat unleavened bread for a week. But when Paul calls us to observe this feast, he is saying that when we remember that Christ is our Passover lamb, and that we are truly unleavened, we are keeping the spirit of this feast. We are, mem- we are remembering that we are now dead to sin and alive to Christ that we are no longer slaves of sin, just as Israel was no longer slaves of Egypt, but we are now slaves of God. Just as Israel, when it exited Egypt, was known as the people of God. And now they had to obey the law of their gods. We are to keep this feast not with the old leaven of our sins, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We do not keep this feast if we 
live in bondage to our sins. If we live as though we are still slaves to malice and wickedness. If, if we live that way, we are forgetting what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. We're forgetting that we have a new identity in Christ. We are no longer to be who we used to be. We are, we are to be these, these new creations. Since so malice and wickedness should have no part in the Christian life. When we go back to sin after the Lord has set us free, we're like a man who's emptied all the, the garbage bins out of the house. He's collected all the garbage and he's put it outside in, in, the, in the bigger collection bin. And then, you know, right before the garbage truck comes, he decides, you know, I actually really like that garbage. And he, he runs outside, grabs all the bags, and he brings it out, brings it back into the house, and spreads it all over the house. That, that, that's foolishness, but that's what, what we're like sometimes when we go back to our sins. Where we're saying we like the filth and the dirt and the grossness of sin. It is foolish to act as though sin has control and dominance over our lives. We have been set free from sin. We're no longer in bondage to it. We need to keep this feast. And that's why if you are in Christ, you can't use, you shouldn't be using that language of saying, well, I'm addicted to sin. If you are in Christ, you are not addicted to sin. You are free from it. Lord promises you victory over it. And so we can truly feast. As Paul calls us a feast, because it is a feast. It's not uh, to, we're not to mourn about this, we're to rejoice in it. We're, we're free. Christ has set us at liberty. We're no longer bound to our sins. We're no longer bound to the sorrow, the shame, and the guilt that our sin brings we're free from it and we this is a feast we get to celebrate every single day of our lives when paul says let us keep the feast he's using a a, a continuous uh, uh, uh verb there meaning that this is something that's that is to be continually celebrated again and again every single day that's so much better then the feast that the Israelites observed. They got to celebrate this feast once a year and only for seven days. But we celebrate every single day of our life. So as you prepare to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper next week, let us hear Paul's words of encouragement. Let's be sure that we visualize the dangerous growth of sin. That we view sin rightly. That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Let's purge out that sin. Remembering that we have a new identity in Christ. And let's not just purge us out this week. Let us keep this feast all the days of our life. 
for we have been truly set free from sin and death. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a wonderful salvation you have purchased for us in Christ. You have not only paid for the legal judgments that we deserve, you have not only removed from us the torments of hell, the everlasting judgment of your great holiness, but you have given us new life in Christ. You have promised us and given us freedom from our sins that we can now forsake sin and live in holiness to you. Lord, we thank you that you have made us new creations, that we have a new identity in Christ. Lord, help us to be ever aware and, and, and knowing that we have that new identity. Help us, Lord, to, to rejoice in that identity and find everlasting consolation in you, in our battle against sin. Lord, encourage us this week as we examine ourselves. Encourage us in the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, cause us to put sin away from our lives. We pray in Christ's name.